welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Martyrs. Before we dive in for today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up that there will be mention of sexual assault and there also will be some explicit language. So consider yourself doubly warned. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this extra special episode of Martyr She Wrote. Uh, For those of you who don't recognize my voice, I'm Josh, the co-founder of the Empathy Paradigm and your guest host for today. Many of you have been asking to hear more about Anna's story, so uh, without any further delay, let's jump right in. Anna? Yeah, thanks for being here. Well, I think I said a little bit in the very first episode about my background, but I I did want to uh, go into some more detail um, just because I think it really informs the way that I am uh, hosting this podcast and kind of, you know, what my goals are for it. Before I dive into my story specifically, though, I did want to preface it with some thoughts on potentially the impact that this might have. Namely, my parents were missionaries in the Philippines for 35 years, and although they've retired from the mission field, my dad is the pastor of a small Southern Baptist church, and so they are very much all in and always have been. And so me telling my story and, and telling the not so sanitized version of it is something that creates a lot of anxiety for me because I love my parents and I really don't want to hurt them. And, you know, I, I wrestled with that for a while now, but The realization that I've kind of come to recently is that I have spent the majority of my life protecting my parents' feelings, but most importantly, protecting their message. But during all of that, I don't know that anyone was really protecting me. So me telling my story is not about trying to badmouth them or or badmouth Christianity or missions or anything like that, it's not to hurt anyone. It's about advocating, not just for me, but for other people who are in a similar position. Me telling this story is about speaking up for them and giving them a voice and hopefully changing a little bit of the culture that I grew up in so that in the future, other kids will maybe have their voices heard and be in a safer situation. Yeah, I think that's definitely an important distinction to make on intent versus impact. All you can do is really share your experience the way that you experienced it. And it is important to note that you're not doing it in a malicious way. You're doing it to help provide context for other people that are listening and saying, This sounds a little familiar. So why don't we start then (laughs) in the beginning, (laughs) I guess. Uh, Yeah. So actually, the story kind of starts before I was born. My parents both are missionary kids or MKs, as we like to call it. 
Um, so they actually experienced the same missionary kid life that I did of living overseas and having parents who were, uh, you know, wrapped up in ministry work that was sort of all encompassing. So my dad grew up in Japan. He was born there and lived there until he left for college. And then my mom's dad was a pastor. And so he did a lot of pastoring in different places in the U.S., but also a big chunk of her childhood was in Guyana. And so they, you know, both of them in their own ways had experienced something fairly similar. And that's something I've struggled with a lot is the idea that my parents experienced the same thing that I did and yet chose to replicate it in their own lives and with their own kids. And I kind of feel like one of two things has to be the case. Either they were just as traumatized as me and they are just repeating the same cycle because they don't know how to get out of it. And if that's the case, then that's really heartbreaking. But the other possibility is that maybe they weren't as traumatized as I was. You know, maybe maybe they saw the good parts of it. And, and I've known other MKs that have really loved their missionary life upbringing. And so if that's the case, then, you know, great, good for them. But that doesn't mean that my experience is invalid or that my trauma is invalid. And so when I was born, my parents had just finished seminary. They got their master's in divinity and were waiting for their appointment to the mission field from the Southern Baptist Convention. They were pastoring a church at the time. And when I was still a baby, I think I was like one or two, they officially received the call to go to the Philippines. Um, and so they packed up me and my brother, my older brother, and we moved to the Philippines. And this was this was not like a short-term missions commitment, like we'll try it out and see what it's like. It was like they were planning to make that their entire life, and they did. Um, and so they they spent the first year focusing on learning Tagalog, that's the local language. And then early on, I think around age four, we moved to a really remote area in the Philippines to plant churches. And so it sounds like it really was kind of business as usual, moving to a remote village in another country. It is what they were used to or accustomed to from their own childhood. Mm-hmm. My parents, like a lot of missionaries, are so comfortable with the cross-cultural experience that I don't, I, I think they're kind of like immune to culture shock at this point, where they're just used to going somewhere brand new and learning about the culture and then just kind of adapting to it. And it's it's really an impressive skill, but it's also a skill that I think not every brain type and personality type is well suited to. Mm -hmm. and, and that was something that I began to figure out early on. So my mom had gotten her undergrad in education. And since we were in a pretty remote village, there was not an English speaking school anywhere nearby. And so my mom homeschooled my brother and I. So I started homeschooling in kindergarten all the way until fifth grade. And that was, 
that was rough because I have since found out actually just in the last few years that I actually have ADHD. Mm-hmm. And so that was a major impact on my education that I, you know, I wasn't in a school system where anybody would have caught that. Mm. And so I, I felt very stupid <laughs> for, for a long time. Yeah. I, well, I mean, even on top of having an undiagnosed neurodivergent illness, I, you don't speak the language at this point, right? Like there's a lot of intersections there of why you might have felt isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and I started learning Tagalog as I was learning English and so I I grew up being able to communicate with the locals. And because we were really far out in the country, there weren't any other kids who looked like me. Um, and so I attracted a lot of attention and got really sensitive to being stared at and having my cheeks pinched and stuff like that. And even Mm -hmm. though my parents encouraged my brother and I to make friends and spend time with the kids in our village, I am very naturally introverted and shy. Um, And so I I think I just kind of retreated into my own sort of isolated world. Um, and, And I don't think I really felt like I had a friend until about sixth grade. So there was there were a lot of years of feeling very lonely and and not really knowing how to interact with other people. So one of the earliest religious messages that was kind of traumatic for me that I remember receiving was when I was five years old. My dad was diagnosed with a really aggressive form of melanoma, which is a skin cancer. Mm. And he had a couple operations in the Philippines, but couldn't really find a doctor that specialized in this particular form of cancer. And so my parents left my brother and I with another missionary family on the field, and they came to the States to meet with a specialist. And The way that the story goes, and this is a story I've heard my dad preach many times in sermons, is that the U.S. doctor said to him, if you go back to the Philippines, you will die. Because essentially he was saying like, you know, the medical system in the Philippines is not sufficient to give you the treatment that you need. And so this is just a foolish risk that you would be taking, you and your family, And my dad, you know, who was so full of faith and um, devotion to the gospel said, I will go where the Lord has called me, even if it means that I die. And that's a, you know, that's kind of a romantic story at first glance, you know, like, wow, he's so heroic. But I, I feel like for me, that sent a very specific message that I needed to be willing to die for the gospel and that my dad was willing to die, even if it meant that we would be left behind, even if it meant that we wouldn't have anyone taking care of us. And so really early on, I think I had this sense of 
one, I've got to take care of myself because my parents are literally going to jump at the chance to, you know, sacrifice their lives. But also that like, I needed to get on board with that way of thinking. I needed to be willing to sacrifice anything. And so, you know, that language of take up your cross and follow me, that was kind of the refrain that played in my head over and over at a lot of different junctures in my life. When I was faced with the opportunity to do what was good and safe for me, I chose to do the thing that was harmful to me because I literally thought that was what people did when they loved God enough. Yeah. Yeah. That messaging on sacrifice is so prevalent and so intense. Mm -hmm. Not only do you have to be willing and ready to lose everything, but your heavenly father may ask you to die in the name of this belief, in the name of this work Mm -hmm. that you're doing. Absolutely. And, you know, the Bible has multiple stories of parents sacrificing their kids for the Lord, you know, at his request. And so I definitely knew deep down, I don't think I ever had this conversation, but I knew that if God asked my dad to kill me, he would not because he didn't love me and not because I wasn't precious to him, but because God was everything. I wasn't everything. And so it was just very like, I knew my place in the universe and it was after the mission, after spreading the gospel. Mm -hmm. What do you feel like that did? Because that's early development. That's early childhood development and very, very formative years for attachments. How do you feel like that's played out? I definitely felt abandoned in a lot of ways. And I think that led to some really intense disorganized attachment (laughs) style (laughs) symptoms, you know, where I, I tend to be really avoidant and, and, you know, that's still something I'm working through, but I think, you know, the biggest Mm -hmm. way that it impacted me at that time was that it gave me a very low sense of my own worth and my own value. And so when other sort of shaming messages came into the picture, it was really easy for me to latch onto those and like over identify with that shame because it just made so much sense in the framework of my childhood. Mm -hmm. So my dad did come back to the Philippines and basically he was cancer free. And the way that he tells the story is that it was a miracle, you know, that, that God healed him because he had faith and, you know, it's hard to argue with that. Maybe he just got lucky, but either way, it was like the most profound affirmation that they were doing the right thing, that they had made the right call because there were basically no repercussions for making that really risky gamble. Mm -hmm. So I think just a few months after that, another pretty significant memory comes up. I, I was probably four or five. I don't, I don't know, but we were at kind of like a village um, block party, like one of the richer families threw a party and had invited everybody. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was like prime witnessing time for my parents because that's when they can meet people and talk about their new church and 
you know, start establishing relationships yeah. and all that. And, you know, the, the corporate world, we call it networking. <laughs> yes, yes. Salvific networking. Mm -hmm. So I was there at the party and, and I don't remember my dad and brother being there. I just remember my mom being there. But at one point it was getting dark and I was tired. You know, I was five. And again, I mentioned the thing about not liking to be stared at. Um, and so I felt really uncomfortable. And I remember like going up and tugging on my mom's sleeve and being like, mom, I really want to go home. Like I'm mm -hmm. bored. And I don't, I don't know really what she was engaged in at that moment. Maybe it was a really intense, important conversation, but I remember her turning around and squatting down in front of me and saying, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. And I know now obviously what that meant because that's quoting a bible verse it's in matthew where jesus turns to peter and says get behind me satan you are a stumbling block to me you do not have in mind the concerns of god but merely human concerns but as a kid not knowing the symbolism of it i literally thought she was calling me satan yeah or I, I also, for a while, really wondered if I was demon-possessed. You know, like, do I have a demon inside of me? Is that why she said that? And so that combined with the cancer survival story, mm -hmm. it communicated a couple of things. One was that I was a hindrance to the gospel, or at least that I could easily be a hindrance to the gospel. And so I needed to get out of the fucking way and I needed to keep my mouth mm -hmm. shut because me asking to go home because I was uncomfortable was so unimportant compared to being there to spread the gospel. And then not only was it unimportant, but it got me rebuked, you know, as if I were Satan. And so I learned really early on that if I was uncomfortable, nobody wanted to hear about it. So it was better for me to just figure it out and keep my mouth shut. And then I wouldn't get rebuked. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds also like there could have been that correlation between your discomfort and badness. Yeah. Right. That like, I'm uncomfortable and want to go. My body is telling me I'm unsafe. And then to have that aligned with Satan, I mean, that sends a pretty, pretty clear message that your safety is mm -hmm. bad, <laughs> that the feelings that you're getting when you are unsafe are bad. Yeah. And that's how you should label them from then on. That's how you should view them, quit listening to them, push them aside. Well, and, and I think that sort of kickstarted a process that I, I hear a lot of my religious trauma clients and friends who have experienced religious trauma describing, which is sort of a dissociation from the body. Mm -hmm. Because there's this sense that if Satan can use your body's instincts as a temptation, then the best way to handle that was to shut down your awareness of what your body was telling you. So if I was uncomfortable, that might be Satan and I needed to shut that down and not listen to it. 
if I felt unsafe or I felt anxious or even depressed, I needed to shove that down because that was probably Satan trying to tempt me or tempt my parents or disrupt something in some way. So I got into, you know, a habit of disregarding the signals that my body was telling me so that I could be a better missionary kid. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That body dissociation, I think, sort of became a really unfortunate precursor to a sexual assault that happened when I was eight. Mm. I don't want to go into detail on that, but I do think that it relates because the um, the person who did it was somebody that my parents had invited to stay at our house, somebody that they were actually working with through one of their ministries. Mm-hmm. And so this person who assaulted me was someone in ministry. And as I just said, you know, I had already learned that speaking up about me being uncomfortable was not okay. It wasn't safe. And so at eight years old, I decided that I couldn't tell anyone. I I decided to just keep it to myself because I really thought that if I told my parents, one, that they would be mad at me, that I might get rebuked, but also that they would feel like they needed to leave the mission field. And that would be ruining dad's whole cancer story. You know, like, oh man, I was going to be a missionary there, but then my stupid daughter, you know, had this issue and we had to leave. So we didn't get to save as many people as we thought, you know, like that was kind of the story that in my head I was telling myself. Well, and I would also say it's not just the story in your head right? Like that was the messaging that you had received externally that helped you create that story. And the one thing that you said that really stuck out to me in that story, when you said, I decided, I decided to not talk about it. And I think for anyone listening, it's really important to take just a minute and really explored how a lot of times when we say, well, I decided X, Y, Z, it implies a type of freedom, right? That like, it's just completely up to me. I'm in full control. I get to make those choices. But in your case, and in the cases of so many people, yeah, we may have decided to do something, but those decisions are made under duress. They're based on fear. Right. It's a survival mechanism. Exactly. And so there is no real responsibility for a decision like that because of the freedom that's required to make those decisions based off of the circumstances surrounding them. So that decision was heavily influenced by those external factors, by the messages you had been receiving about your discomfort being bad and safety not being a priority or your definition of safety not even being what safe really meant. Yeah, you're right that I I made that choice, but also I didn't really have agency. So it wasn't much of a choice. Right. But so when you combine a really traumatic event like sexual assault for a child with the messages of purity culture, that quickly becomes very toxic. 
I had no framework to know even what it was that had happened to me. I thought it was something that no one else had experienced or could possibly understand. So I already felt really isolated in that. Yeah. But also when I started to hear messages about, you know, saving yourself for marriage and staying a virgin until your wedding night and all of that, I really easily internalized that as I'm broken, I'm ruined. I even remember writing a letter to my future husband in youth group one time Mm -hmm. and just saying to him, I'm sorry that I messed up. That makes me very angry. I mean, I'm, I'm certain it's not anywhere near the anger that you've experienced. But that messaging of purity and virginity even being such a such an important factor in relationships and in your identity and in your future it's it's fucked up it is plain and simple there's no real way to get around (laughs) saying that yeah now have you talked about have you had a guest talk about purity culture yet on your podcast No, we haven't dived into it specifically. And I definitely want to do an episode really just about that because there's so much from like the True Love Waits program that I went through probably Mm -hmm. 20 different times because we were planning churches. And so we were doing it with the youth group at every new church. Yeah. And, you know, I had the promise ring, Mm -hmm. all of that. I even, I sang a song that was about waiting for marriage and I would play it before this one sermon that my dad would do that was about purity. And I still remember every word to that fucking song. (laughs) (laughs) Did y'all ever do those like really weird purity ceremonies where like you get married to your dad. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Fortunately, we didn't do that one, but I had friends who did. Yeah. Well, since you haven't talked about purity culture in detail, maybe we can give like a three to five minute breakdown Mm -hmm. on what purity culture kind of is. And that will at least set the stage for further conversation on it. Yeah. So, so purity culture essentially is an overarching term to describe the religious, particularly the evangelical emphasis on sexual purity Mm -hmm. and on only having sex with the person that you are married to. Mm -hmm. And so remaining a virgin until marriage was a very high priority when purity culture was at its height um, books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, there definitely were a lot of like rules and expectations around marriage and sex. But also, I think even for people who were not married, there was this big emphasis, not just on not physically doing the act of sex, but also not thinking about it and not going even close to, you know, anything that could be a source of temptation. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of policing of thought that we were encouraged to do internally. And also we were encouraged to keep each other accountable, you know, like, Hey, 
I saw that you and your crush were talking alone the other day, and I felt really convicted that maybe you're going down a path of unrighteousness, you know? And so it was Mm -hmm. like, we all were hypervigilant for one another to make sure that our collective purity was maintained. Yeah. Yeah. And the element of body policing as well, right? Because it's not just behavior, it's the way that you look. Uh So I can't tell you how many times I watched a gentle confrontation between two people where someone is commenting almost exclusively on a woman's body and how the clothing that she's wearing isn't appropriate, or it might lead someone else to stumble as if that's their responsibility in the slightest. And that's where I think a lot of our generation and the generations before us have experienced some of that body dysmorphia is feeling like feeling all of that attention all of the time and not feeling at home in your own body because your body is this problem, even when it's not. Well, and and so going back to the Philippines, you know, when I was there in middle school and high school, there was a lot of focus put on the kind of clothes that I wore Yeah, because it was like, just by being female, I was a temptation. Like, and there was no way around it. Like the best thing I could hope for was that I could hide my body well enough that it wouldn't cause men to stumble. And so I, I never wore shorts. In fact, it wasn't really until adulthood that I even started wearing shorts and I still don't feel very comfortable in it. You know, I never Mm -hmm. was, I never showed cleavage because I was terrified that either someone was going to stumble because of what I was wearing or that they were going to assault me. Mm -hmm. And What's really heartbreaking is that even though I was incredibly careful, there still were three more times during my middle school and high school years that I got assaulted in public, Mm -hmm. but they really reinforced this idea that men are totally driven by sex and can't control themselves and also that my body is basically like a like a like a hazard cone. <laughs> yes, like a yeah, it was like I was like a hazard beacon like hey, yeah. molest me, you know, like free free boob touches here or something. Like I don't know, but I just was terrified of being in public and not yeah. wearing something that was like really big and baggy. Yeah. So so that's in into high school. Were there any other manifestations of that type of toxic belief system that you were a part of that showed up in your high school years? Oh my gosh. Like I would need so <laughs> let's narrow <laughs> I would it down. Need so many episodes to, to tell you. <laughs> but I mean, other than purity culture, there were also there was a lot of focus in the missionary community on spiritual warfare. And, you know, I mentioned the get behind me, Satan. That was kind of the first among a lot of different stories that you would hear from missionaries about, you know, the the devil trying to disrupt things. And like one time we had 
an older gentleman was at a Bible study at our house and he ended up having a stroke like in our backyard. And the other villagers got really freaked out because they thought we had like put a curse on him or something. And my parents were, you know, just really convinced. And I remember them telling everybody else like that it was spiritual warfare that had given him that stroke. And so I was like, crap, apparently you can just keel over dead if like Satan has it in for you or something. And so I had a lot of hypochondria about health things and wondering like, okay, is this, (laughs) is this the devil or like, or is this God like using this health thing to get my attention about like a sin or something like that? And so that that superstition behind the spiritual warfare stuff, I think, creates this really intense like existential fear of there's stuff going on that I can't see. And at any moment, something might happen that is spiritual in nature that I can do nothing about other than pray and hope to God that he will actually listen. Mm hmm. One of the, I think, earliest forms of deconstruction that I noticed in my life was in high school. I was praying fervently for a missionary couple that had gotten taken hostage by a Muslim extremist group in the south of the Philippines. And I devoted myself to praying for them daily, that they would be rescued, that they would be okay. I organized prayer meetings and everything. And just like as the months ticked by and they did not get free, I started to really question like, when has prayer ever actually done anything? And, and I, I remember trying to have that conversation with some friends and, and some of them were really empathetic to that. And were like, yeah, man, I wonder that too. But then others were very judgmental about that. Like they felt the discernment that I was doubting and that I needed to recommit my life to Christ, you know, the amount of times I have recommitted like (laughs) minute by minute sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, I'd be, I'd like recommit. And then I'd get up and be like, Oh, God, that took forever. And I'm like, oh, God, oh no, I'm not, I'm ungrateful. I have to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so that's another um, sort of spiritual warfare-esque superstition is this belief that like, okay, I need to be saved, but also like, maybe if I think the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, then I'm going to get unsaved. And like, I'm not really sure what goes on that list. I'm not really sure if I was absolutely saved to begin with, or if maybe I tricked myself into thinking I was. And so it was this never ending cycle of like, I need to say the prayer again and I need to prove my commitment. I need to double down and be all in like dad, you know, and then maybe, maybe God will take me in and maybe I'll be safe at least until I do something else to make him upset with me. Right. Right. And partner that with some of the like immutable qualities of being a human that are labeled bad. Right. right. <laughs> like yeah. The things that you can't change, you can't get rid of. Like I can repent for certain things, 
but if it never goes away, like if it's part of my identity, what then? Right. Well, and you know, the, the whole hell doctrine is really apropos to the missionary experience because the entire reason why we were there was because my parents believed that people who do not hear the gospel and accept it go to hell. So if we were to just stay home and not plant churches, thousands of people would be going to hell because we failed. And so it's like, you know, in the light of eternal suffering for thousands of people, how selfish would you have to be to not go or to do something that might disrupt that? Mm-hmm. I remember um, when I was in high school one time, I was on the family computer. We only had one um, dial up. Woo. Um, <laughs> but I remember seeing an email that my dad got from another missionary and they essentially were saying that their daughter, who was my age, had been raped and that she was pregnant and that they were leaving the mission field and how heartbroken they were about that. And, but that they were, you know, going to keep the baby, of course. And I remember thinking, this is why I didn't tell them about the rape when I was eight and about any of the subsequent assaults, because right there in front of me was proof that if I had spoken up, it would have disrupted their ministry and thousands of people would have gone to hell. So it was like, it was just so clearly not worth it to me, to them, to anybody. Yeah. So with that messaging now partnered with some of your really early deconstruction, you moved back to the U.S. for college yeah. So how did that kind of culture shift? Did it kickstart more deconstruction? Did it bring like <laughs> bring you in tighter to the fold? What did that look like? So I think by the time I was graduating high school, I knew that there was something deeply wrong. I knew something was wrong. I had stomach ulcers. I had chronic pain. I was depressed. I was suicidal. And I think at the time, my interpretation of why was that I just felt trapped in my house. I had a really difficult relationship with my mom. And I I don't think I was ready to recognize the religious contribution to all of the symptoms that I felt all I was able to really recognize was that I needed to get out of the house. Something that made that especially difficult, though, was that my sister, uh, who is 11 years younger than me, she was just barely in elementary school at that point. And it was really miserable having to choose between my own well-being And feeling like I needed to stay to protect her. Um, Because in a lot of ways, I felt like I was kind of standing in as a parent for her. um, 
because, you know, I was trying to give her all of the stuff that, that I hadn't had, but I just recognized like, I, I have to leave. And I think that created a lot of shame. And so when I graduated high school, I moved to the U.S. on my own. I, I put all of my earthly possessions in one trunk, like fucking Harry Potter, and <laughs> and moved to the States to go to a Baptist college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time, like I said, I, I wasn't really questioning religion. I was questioning just missionary life and my relationship with my parents. So I still really was craving the community that was all I had ever known, you know? And so I got to the U.S. and in it was kind of a mixture of a lot of relief to no longer be living with my parents, to no longer be sticking out like a sore thumb everywhere I went. I didn't feel so much like I was a moving target And so there were a lot of things that I think got easier, but by that point, I already firmly had the template in my head of a good Christian is all in and sacrifices everything. And if you're not suffering, you're probably not doing it right. Right. And so I immediately threw myself into church leadership, you know, I was volunteering every Sunday and every Wednesday and like leading worship and leading Bible studies and just trying desperately to feel the emotional connection with my faith that I felt like I was supposed to. Another thing that I think had kind of started really when I was pretty little was this fear that I was a spiritual sociopath. And what I mean by that is that I I really thought that because I didn't emotionally connect with the gospel and because I didn't connect with God in prayer or, you know, even really in worship, that there was like something deeply fucked up in my brain for spiritual stuff. Because I thought like, you know, for some reason, that spiritual f- switch was flipped, and that's why I couldn't connect. And so I felt this like imposter syndrome that really drove this need to try even harder and to like prove my devotion even more because I knew not only had I been ruined sexually, but also apparently spiritually, I was inadequate and insufficient. And so I just had so much work to do to make up for that. Yeah. It was exhausting. Yeah. I'm I'm certain like that's got to feel like a crushing weight. Well, and you know, I had mentioned earlier that my parents were both missionary kids themselves and then had turned around and, and pledged their lives to God and taken up the family business as it were. And I felt a lot of pressure to do that same thing. And so college was a time of me really wrestling with whether or not I thought I could do that. And I actually went back to visit my family in the Philippines during college, and it was incredibly triggering. And I think that was when I I still didn't necessarily connect it to the religious ideas but I did recognize I cannot be a missionary. 
And I think at the time I would have said, like, I'm just insufficient, you know, I, I just can't. But I'm glad at least that on some level I was able to recognize this is not good for me and I don't have to do it. Yeah. So where were you at then your senior year? If you've realized now, okay, missions work is not for me. Did you have a plan moving forward? <laughs> yeah. So I, I had been majoring in music and then I kind of realized that that career-wise was not going to be the greatest investment. So I switched to psychology. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I did end up getting my degree in psychology and I'm so glad I did because that was the beginning of me kind of putting some of the puzzle pieces together and recognizing like, wait, maybe there are solutions for what's happening inside of me mm -hmm. that aren't just scripture and prayer, you know, like maybe there's something else that could help. I, I went to a lot of counselors during that time. Unfortunately, I went exclusively to Christian counselors. And so while I was able to process some stuff, I still did not process the sexual assault. And I still didn't process this sense spiritually that I was just, you know, broken. But honestly, I just don't think anyone who wasn't a trauma therapist I, I just don't think that it was going to happen. And I just did not have the resources and the education yet to understand what I needed to look for. And neither did the therapist that I was working with. Yeah. And at that point, you hadn't really pulled apart that a lot of that trauma was yep. attached to religion. And so going to someone that is embedded in that same religion probably yeah. wasn't going to be the best fit for you one way or the other. Yeah. So I met my partner, Marcus, at college, and I I still really feel like he is the best thing that has ever happened to me in my life. I yeah. just felt so safe and known and loved by him. But we were still very religious. So we we graduated college and moved to the Dallas area where immediately I got plugged in as a worship leader and we were leading a small group. At this point, my health had really, really declined. I had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which basically just means lots and lots of pain. There's not really a blood test that will show anything definitively. And I always kind of in the back of my mind had this fear that again, it was spiritual warfare, you know, like this was something that Satan was doing to me, or maybe it was something that God was doing to me. Shout out to Job, right? Exactly. Oh man. I wrote so many songs about Job. Yeah. yeah. I remember telling my dad one time when they were visiting the States, about how difficult it was for me to lead worship because of the fibromyalgia. You know, I would be standing up for about six hours because I, I was at a mega church that had like four services. And so at the end of the day, I would literally be like writhing in pain. And I remember telling my dad about that and he blessed me and said, what a great sign of devotion to God that was. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that's, um, that's a lot to hear. 
But then on top of everything else you have already internalized about yeah. your parents' suffering and your own suffering. And then now I'm getting praised for it. Still being in literal service to the Lord and having immense pain that doctors can't figure out, which is always a spiritual sign. Right. Being praised <laughs> for having for torturing myself. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So I think during that 10 years post college graduation, I was experiencing this like greater and greater chasm between what I was experiencing and what I was trying to hold on to spiritually. Um, just like the incongruence was tearing me apart. I was uh, I ended up actually working at a Presbyterian church for a while, and I encountered a lot of like sexism, a lot of sexism in the Presbyterian church, a lot of homophobia, a lot of mishandling of money in ways that I was very uncomfortable with. And for all of those issues, whenever I went to church leadership, to bring my concerns to them, it was like a brick wall. Just there was nothing that was going to change. You know, they would always thank me for being so brave to take my concerns to them. But there were always reasons for why those things were always, you know, being done that way. And it wasn't going to change. And so again, that, that like incongruence internally of, I'm putting all of my energy into trying to improve this thing and no progress is happening. I was just kind of at the breaking point. And so that's when mm -hmm. I discovered that I have PTSD. Oh <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually in the office um, at, at my church job and my youth leader boss came in with like a, it was like a giant cardboard cutout of Justin Bieber, <laughs> but uh, he like jumped out of a corner with the cutout and was like, boogity, boogity, boo. And something about that just triggered the hell out of me. And I had a complete meltdown, like so public. Everybody saw, everybody was worried about me. They were like, what's going on with Anna? You know, but I was like, okay, I need to do some investigating because that was not a normal response. You know, like everybody else in my office had been the victim of that same prank and none of them had like sobbed uncontrollably for 30 minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so that was really what kickstarted my research into trauma. And in a lot of ways, that's also what got me started on my master's in counseling, because the more that I researched PTSD and trauma, the more I was like, holy crap, this is me. Like every single one of these symptoms is me. The hypervigilance where I'm, I'm always looking around to make sure that I'm safe. My startle response is off the charts, you know, like any unexpected noise, the nightmares, the dissociation, like just 
so many of these stereotypical symptoms of PTSD I had. And it was, it was actually really, really validating because a lot of the pathologizing that I had done of myself, you know, of like why I was so messed up and why my brain didn't work the right way and why I was always so anxious about everything. It was like, this explained it. This started to make sense. And that was like the first glimmer of me realizing maybe there's an answer to all of this that isn't just that God doesn't care about me and is choosing not to heal me. Mm. Yeah. I, I remember hitting that point as well. Finally getting to a spot where it's like, maybe it's not that God is ignoring me or that he hates me. Right. And so it was shortly after that, I was still attending church, but was getting so fed up with the volunteering. It was the mega church where I was doing multiple services every week. So yeah, this church was really big on small groups and on speaking the truth to one another in love. And, you know, there were 12 step recovery programs for people who were recovering from same sex attraction. It was a very, I think, insidious version of Christianity that really was like different than anything I had experienced because it was so conformist. Yes, so conformist with that very confusing messaging. There's all this language and marketing around come as you are, and we are a community. And like, like we're just a bunch of sinners. Yeah. Yeah. Like that whole, mm, I'm going to hit you with some cool truth type youth pastor nonsense. And <laughs> backwards then, hat. Backwards hat, sit on the chair backwards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's get real, guys. <laughs> but then on the flip side of that is that incredibly dogmatic traditional conformist type rules that are still being followed under the guise of we're not like the other kids. Yeah. Yeah. So there were a lot of problematic things at that church, including the fact that they strongly encouraged all of the members not to go to mental health counselors because the party line was you should be getting all of your needs met in the church. And so there should not be an issue that you need to go to a a therapist with because that's what your community group should be doing. And if they're not meeting that need, then that means that they are failing and you need to like all go in together to like get shepherded and taught some better community grouping skills, you know? And so considering that I was working on getting my license and counseling, that was very frustrating. And it was about that time that my husband was, he was really deconstructing at the same time as me, but he ultimately said, I can't go to church anymore. And I think that was really what I needed because the church had a rule that a woman could not be a leader, including, you know, worship leader, if her husband was not also a member of the church. And so by my husband choosing to not re-sign the like membership commitment, inadvertently, that meant that I was kicked off of the worship team. Mm. That is when deconstruction really hit. 
And so when we left that church, we we tried really briefly to go to a couple of like progressive churches, you know, like uh, some United Methodist churches and stuff like that, you know, much more inclusive and much less dogmatic. But what I noticed, this was like literally the first time in my entire life that I was just attending church. I was just somebody in the congregation and I was not leading in any capacity. And what I realized was that my church leadership experience was one big flight response. Basically, I had been running from my anxiety and my trauma that always would happen when I set foot in a church building. And the way that I did that was by being really, really busy and working really, really hard the entire time I was there. And so when for the first time in literally my whole life, I was just sitting, it was like I was going to jump out of my skin. My stomach was writhing. I was nauseated. I was angry. Every single thing that I heard from the front, I was just furious about. And I was like, what is going on? Like, I've never felt this way before. And it was like, I started, you know, connecting the dots a little bit more of like, I think this is how I've always felt. (laughs) I just don't think I ever gave myself the chance to sit down and actually feel it. And that was when Marcus and I talked to each other and we were just like, this isn't worth it. I think at the time we still would have said that we were Christians, but we both just recognized that going to church was not healthy for either of us, especially for me. And it was incredible. Like I I knew you pretty well during that time, Josh. And I remember it felt like having an epiphany every week of just like, I can give myself permission to relax. I can give myself permission to not be volunteering in some ministry capacity. I can give myself permission to not chastise my friends and family all the time when I feel like the spirit is leading. And it was just this, I felt like that cross that I had been carrying since I was, since I was eight, I finally got to lay it down. I do think that you finally had people around you that were going to help you with that cross, right? Like we were going to, regardless of whether or not you were going to carry it or put it down, we were going to be on either side of it and help you do with it what you needed to. And so since that time, we have not returned to attending church. I've gone to a couple of church services in in recent years, and it has really been, I think, an affirmation that church is just not a safe place for me. In a lot of ways, you can think of PTSD as like a nervous system malfunction. And when I get into a religious setting, my nervous system does not let me relax. And I feel very unsafe. And so while I still 
I still think God is real, some version of God, but like, I just don't think that Mm -hmm. if God is a good God, I don't think he wants me to be miserable and angry and hurt. And I don't think he wants that. And I know I don't want that. So I'm laying that cross down and I'm praying with whatever little faith I have left in me mm-hmm. that God knows my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are finally paying attention to your wants. Like, and that's kind of like the bottom line of it, right? Is that it's like, I, this is what I want. I want to be happy. And me wanting to be happy is not a bad thing. Me wanting to enjoy this life and this time that I have here doesn't equate badness. So I started working in crisis mental health work. That's actually where I met you, Josh. And I noticed that trauma happens even when religion isn't a factor, but people who are religious don't have some kind of immunity. If anything, I was noticing that they had a higher vulnerability. Yeah. I feel like, you know, my friendship with you, Josh, was really, it came at a great time because one, you were giving voice to a lot of harm that the church had done. And I really needed to hear that and hear it from several different sources. Um, But also I was coming to terms with my sexuality. And so it was during that time that I came out as bisexual. And as I kind of was working backwards through my trauma, including the sexual assault, I was recognizing the fact that purity culture had not just caused me to feel a lot of shame about sex itself, but also about what I wanted and what I was drawn to and attracted to. And that was something that I had been working really hard to repress. But a big part of my journey that you really helped me with, Josh, was listening to that and acknowledging it and just owning it, you know, and and saying, this is who I am. And it doesn't change anything about the commitment that I've made to my husband, but it is the truth about me. And that's a thing that I'm actually speaking up about now. Yeah, it's it's amazing the freedom that comes with establishing your identity and caring about it, actually truly loving the identity that you've created and not the one that was given to you or expected of you. Yeah, I feel like it wasn't until I was you know, 35 and after that, I really experienced rest for the first time. I experienced actual happiness and satisfaction. And I really think I experienced spirituality for the first time because it it wasn't so fraught with trauma. It's like I'm able to sit in the mountains or in the woods or on the beach and just feel connected 
and not any shame and not any need to make myself suffer to prove something. I can just be. And that is such like, that has been such a beautiful thing that I've gained post deconstruction. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of all the incredibly positive things that have come from me recognizing my religious drama and deconstructing and creating safety for myself. The one thing that has been really harmed is my relationship with my parents. It has been really difficult throughout this process to be honest and authentic with them. But things really came to a head when we talked about sexuality and some opinions were expressed that were incredibly damaging. And since that time, I have set a lot of boundaries to protect myself. And I'm really, really proud of that because it's not been easy. (laughs) But one thing I've learned is it's not my job to save other people. I've been trying to do that for a really long time. And now the only person that I'm really worried about saving is me. You know, like I need, I need saving. Yeah. Anyone who talks to you or anyone who listens to this podcast, I think that they'll be able to really understand the love that you have for your family, the love that you have for your parents and how hard it's been to set some type of boundary when you've lived in a world that says boundaries are demonic or bad. Yeah. Even as horrible as it is, feeling like I've lost my parents in a lot of ways, I've gained the chosen family that actually wants what is good for me. Not spiritually good for me, but actually good for me. And so connecting with healthy people has been a reminder that while I have lost something in the church community that I've left, I've gained something that is so much more meaningful and healthy. And I am not looking back. It's, It's been really healing once I started actually seeing a therapist that didn't feel at all like they were pushing a belief system on me, I really was able to process a lot of the trauma and have a lot of retroactive empathy for that little kid. You know, when I was that kid, I had so much self-hatred and self-loathing and it's been so incredible to go back and just unabashedly love her. Yeah. Yes. Being able to love that little hurt child. Yeah. Anna, is there is there really anything that you want to sign off with? Or is there anything that you want to just kind of leave them with as the last word? I think the last thing that I would like to say is to church leaders you know, I think about the megachurch that I went to, they didn't know my history. And so they didn't know that when I was up there leading worship, that it was doing me deep harm, you know, like physical pain, but also emotional pain, you know? And so I think church leaders 
my challenge is to not make assumptions that you know exactly how the message that you are preaching is impacting everybody because everybody is different. You know, like to someone with neurodivergence, a lot of those messages can be really scary and very literal. Not to mention, you know, to a female like me or like Delena, who who I did an episode with a few weeks back, you know, you get a lot of messages about the right way and the wrong way to be female. And that can be really damaging and cause a lot of self-hatred that I don't think, again, I think if God is a good God, I don't think he would want that. And so I think it's it's really about empathy, which is, you know, why we call our company the empathy paradigm, because it's about really thinking about the impact, not just the intention. My parents had great intentions. The impact on me, though, really sucked. And so I just I would love to be a part of a movement that encourages us to be more conscious and aware of the individual experiences of things like religious trauma so that we can make adjustments and make the world a safer place for all of us to be in together. So I think I think that's all I would say. And and thank you all for for listening to this story. I know it's it's a lot, but um but I appreciate having the freedom to tell it. Yeah. And we really appreciate you telling well, it. Thanks again for being here to host this episode, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. I had a lot of fun despite the content <laughs> <laughs> that we got into, but hopefully I can host again if we ever want to dive a little bit more into detail and in some of the yeah, stuff we talked we'll about. We'll see. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. Depending on how people receive yeah, we'll, this Yeah, I'll wait to hear the feedback. <laughs> okay. Well, depending on the feedback, I uh, definitely look forward to talking with cool. you some more. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye.